Well, I might be a little bit biased because one of them was my daughter, but they're pretty cute, weren't they? I mean, just a great job, great job. It's really interesting if you sort of step back for a moment and look at everything going on in the season of Christmas in our culture, one of the things that might surprise you is that it seems like everybody celebrates Christmas. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, uh, people of all sorts of faiths, in some way they get sort of caught up in the Christmas spirit. We listen to songs on the radio, we exchange gifts, we put up a tree in our house. It seems like everybody celebrates Christmas, but that hasn't always been the case. Did you know that? That the earliest followers of Jesus didn't even celebrate Christmas. That's right. So people like Peter and Paul, early church fathers like Ignatius and Irenaeus and Origen, none of them would have ever celebrated the birth of Christ. Which begs the question, what are we doing here? And how did this tradition begin? Well, it's really fascinating. At least I think it's fascinating. I'm so glad you asked that question because I tried to figure out the answer to it. How did we start celebrating Christmas? As with most of the early church creeds and a number of the early church festivals and feasts, Christmas started being celebrated because of a heresy. A heresy that was entitled Docetism. It was a sect of Gnosticism, and here's what the Docetists believed. They believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. That he didn't actually have flesh and blood body. Uh, Docetism comes from the Greek word dokin, and it means to seem or to appear. And so their statement was, Jesus only seemed like a person. He only appeared to be human, but he didn't actually have a body. He could have never actually gone up to him and touched him. And that heresy started to rise in the first few centuries of the Christian church. It's interesting because the apostle John in his letters writes to push back against that conviction. Here's what he wrote. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have, say it with me, church, touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. He's going, no, 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 you don't get it. We saw him. We touched him. We high-fived him after a miracle, okay? We actually put our hands on him. He didn't just seem to be human or appear to be human. He actually was human. And the early church started to celebrate Christmas to remind themselves and to declare to the larger world that truth. So in 336, uh, under the Emperor Constantine, for the first time in the Roman Empire, Christmas was officially celebrated, but it wasn't a date on the calendar until around the mid-5th century under Pope Leo I, when he declared that Christmas would be one of the feasts that the church celebrated every single year. And he chose December 25th for a very strategic reason. Now, here's what we know. We know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. 
Most people think he was probably born in the springtime. Others would argue sometime in the fall. Here's what everybody agrees on though. He wasn't born on December 25th. So you might be asking, well, then why do we celebrate it on December 25th? Why is Christmas celebrated on December 25th? Well, it's fascinating that the Roman Empire during that day and that time uh, worshipped the sun god and they had a celebration, the festival of Saturnalia that they would uh, celebrate on December 25th. And so Pope Leo thought, well, everybody already has the day off of work. Let's celebrate the birth of Christ on that day. That was reason number one. But reason number two, I think, was more important. What the early followers of Jesus saw was that creation itself is telling the story of the birth of Christ. The December 25th in that day was the winter solstice. It was the day, the longest day of the year, where after that, the days started to get longer and longer and longer light started to break through the darkness. So the early followers of Jesus would say things like, there's a new light that's being born. There is a true son that's come into the world. He's the light of all of the nations. He's the living word of God, the light to the whole world. Early followers of Jesus saw that creation itself was declaring that grace emerges out of the deepest darkness. And so they said, let's celebrate the birth of Jesus on that day as a declaration of the true light. Now, one might argue that we haven't done all that great of a job distancing ourselves from this heresy of docetism. Oh, we, we still sort of like the idea that Jesus was human, but not like us. I mean, I, I've, I've ruined one of uh, maybe your favorite Christmas songs during our choir concerts um, this season. And so if you haven't been yet, please come today. We have two more shows. I'll ruin one of your favorite Christmas carols there. Okay. But let me ruin one of the other ones. Um, Away in the manger. It's the, the song that we took this series idea from. Away in the manger, there's this line in that song. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Okay, now, just by a show of hands, will you just raise your hand if you've ever met a baby that didn't cry? <laughs> Me neither. We've had three of them that we knew very, very well, and all of them cried one more than any of the others. I mean, she belted, right? D to think that Jesus didn't cry? I mean, come on. Jesus was a baby just like you and I were one day babies. He cried. He went to the bathroom in his diapers, whatever those looked like back in the ancient world. He was really, truly flesh and blood. Yeah, we're drawn to theological ideas that propose that one day we will be able to escape this world and these bodies and we will be restored to what we've always been designed to be. But what you are designed to be is human. And so Jesus, according to John, in John chapter 1, comes in the flesh. If you have your Bible, will you open with me? John chapter 1. It's page 903 in the Bible that's right in front of you if you'd like to follow along there. 
where John starts to write and he pushes back against this idea that Jesus was something other than human. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. Remember, he's already written that, that Jesus has come, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He said that whoever would believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. And then John writes, and the word became, will you say it with me, church? Flesh. Flesh. Like, like the same kind of flesh that you have. And dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This word flesh is an interesting decision by John when he's writing this scripture. It's the word sarx in the Greek. And it's the most raw, almost crude word that John could have chosen to communicate this truth. He could have said that Jesus was human or that Jesus was man, but he uses this word sarks, a, a flesh, and sometimes it's even translated in the scriptures as sinful nature. The idea that John wants to put forward is that everything that you and I wrestle with and everything that we struggle with in our journey of becoming fully like Jesus was a part of Jesus's life also. It's a synonym, synonym almost for potential for sin. John isn't saying that Jesus was born sinful, but he's using language that would cause us to conclude that Jesus had every one of the same capabilities for sin that you and I have. He's bringing Jesus out of the clouds and putting him in the dirt, as it were. I love the way that Eugene Peterson captures this idea in his paraphrase of the scriptures called the message. He says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In the Greek, it's this idea of he tabernacled among us. He, he dwelt among us. And John uses that word intentionally also for all of his Jewish readers to hear that, that Jesus dwelt or tabernacled in our midst. They all would have been drawn back to the idea that God used to meet with people in the tent of meeting and then in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was seen by the Jewish mind as the place where, where earth and heaven overlapped, where God met with his people. And that's what John wants to say to us. Exactly. That's exactly it. He's Emmanuel. God with us. And here's the question I want you to ask. Why in the world? Why in the world? Would God clothe himself in flesh and blood? Why, why would he empty himself like that? Why would he lower himself like that? If you go home and you watch a football game here in the next few hours, my guess is in one of the end zones, you'll see somebody holding up a sign that says John 3.16. <laughs> And it may be one of those verses that we've heard so many times that we no longer hear it. But John, in just a few chapters removed from this statement that the word became flesh, tells us why. He says this, for God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved that he gave 
God so loved that he clothed himself in humanity. See, the incarnation is a declaration of unconditional love. It's the God of the universe, the king of heaven, the creator of it all, the sustainer of it all, spoke it, the word, the world into existence by one word. It's him saying to you and I this morning, I have come in the person and work of Jesus because of love. That's why we celebrate. That's why we sing. And that's the message of the incarnation. But it might help us to, pun intended, put some uh, a flesh and bone on that statement. <laughs> Why does incarnation communicate love? How does it communicate love? Well, it's fascinating because incarnation tells us that sending a message isn't enough. Isn't enough. Listen to the way that the author of Hebrews puts it. He says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you've had the scriptures. God spoke to you by the, the prophets, by their word, through the law and the prophets, he'll go on to say. You've had all that. But having all that wasn't enough. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his, whom? His son, by Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, you and I, we didn't just need a message. We needed a messenger. And to use the, that, that old, I think very true phrase, the messenger is the message. That Jesus coming in flesh and blood shows up as the messenger and the message of God. And what he does is he initiates relationship, calls us to himself. The word did not become a religious system. The word did not become a theological checklist. The word did not become a political movement. The word did not become a subjective spiritual experience. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And because of that, here's what we know. That the God of the universe, as grand and holy and big and beautiful and marvelous as he is, and he is all of those things, he is also relatable. He's, he's relatable. As the author of Hebrews will go on to say, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. God knows what you're going through. That's what incarnation invites us to trust. He knows exactly the pain that you're walking in. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I understand what you're going through, and you knew they just had no idea? I can remember um, shortly after my mom passed away, I had a well-intentioned person walk up to me and say, I know exactly what you're going through. Our family dog died two weeks ago. And I went, it's a good thing I'm a pastor. If I weren't, I'd punch you in the throat right now. You know, I mean, like, but I just knew in that moment, I knew 
you don't get it. You don't get it. That's difficult, but it's nothing compared to saying goodbye to somebody you love. You know, God will never look at you and say, I know what you're going through without actually knowing what you're going through. He looks at you and he says that this morning, but you can trust that he knows what he's talking about. He's been betrayed. He's been forgotten. He's been outcast. He's been abused. He's been beaten. He's been lonely. He's been distraught. He's been through it all. And when he looks at you and he looks at me, the incarnation tells us that we can have relationship with God because he's relatable to us. But the author of Hebrews goes on to write, he says, in, in light of that, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So because God knows that it's not easy to be human, because God knows that we walk through pain and brokenness, because God knows that there are times where you get tripped up and you fall flat on your face, he knows that because he's been human. Therefore, you can run to his throne with confidence that he's going to receive you and help you in your time of need. Somebody say amen. Amen. We may have been around this story for so long that that statement no longer shocks us. I mean, in the ancient world, religion was established to keep the gods at bay, lowercase g gods. That's the reason that they had shrines and that's the reason they did sacrifice and that's the reason that they had temples. They, they wanted to keep God away from them. They wanted the gods to be appeased. And you need to know that in an ancient world, for people to say, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need was an absolutely unique statement to the Judeo-Christian faith. And it's true. If you're in a moment of need this morning, if you're broken, if you're in pain, if you're wondering, God, where are you and what are you doing? doing his invitation is with confidence draw near i study and, and write for preparing for my sermons on mondays and i have a, a sort of a rule that if my door is closed and my blinds are drawn that the only reason i want anybody to knock or anybody to come in is if the building's on fire okay. with one exception there's one group of people that can come into my office. They don't need to knock. They don't need to text and tell me that they're coming. If they're in the neighborhood, I want them to come in. And it's Grubhub delivery people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's my, it's my, it's my wife and family. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's my people. Like, come on. You don't have to knock your family. You're my kids. You're my wife. You can come in at any moment of the day, any time you can inter quote unquote interrupt me. I want to be interrupted by you. And God would say the exact same thing to you. Draw near with confidence. You can be confident. I love you and I am for you. But maybe you think, why in the world did Jesus become a human? I mean, why not become a kangaroo or a platypus? I mean, we've got one of those at the safari park now. Oh, why not become a, a lion or a tiger or a bear? Oh my, I mean, why, why become a human? Why become 
flesh and blood. I think that the great hymn, O Holy Night, captures the sentiment of what's behind the thrust that's behind that. When Placido Capo wrote this, he said, Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the what? The soul felt its worth. When he appeared, the soul felt its worth. Yeah, incarnation, it initiates relationship, but it validates our worth. And I'm convinced that the church needs to once again be a voice and a mouthpiece of the worth and the value of every single human being. Somewhere along the way, you guys, we got off course. I think maybe it was theological initially where we had this conviction like Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that, that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I absolutely get that. I 100% agree with that. That every single one of us is unworthy of God's love. Here's what I mean by that though. What I mean by that is that we haven't earned it. That none of us can beat our chest and go, aren't I amazing God? Aren't I wonderful? Aren't I great? I've done everything perfect. Why wouldn't you love me? But see what's happened along the way is we have somewhere we've equated being unworthy with having no worth. And please lean in if you hear nothing else from me this morning. Please lean in and please hear that. That being unworthy is not the same thing as having no worth. We are unworthy, but we still have great worth to God. Jesus would affirm this in one of his teachings in Luke chapter 12. You can go read it, the full teaching there, but he says this, why even the hairs on your head are numbered. Some of us, uh, Jesus has to keep really close count on those. It's just going the wrong. Fear not, he says. You are of more what? Value. Then the sparrows, throughout the scriptures, it is confirmed over and over and over again that God values humanity. He values human beings. See, how do you know how much something's worth? See, I could tell you that my house is worth $700,000, but if it only sells for $500,000, how much is it worth? Five hundred. That's how much it's worth. It's worth however much someone is willing to pay for it. So here's the question. What was God willing to pay for humanity? He was willing to give himself. He was willing to come down in flesh and bone and blood. He's affirming to us in taking on human likeness. He is affirming to us the goodness of being human. And I think for too long, the church has started when they talk about God and the story that we're in with God. They've started the story in Genesis chapter three instead of where it actually starts in Genesis chapter one. We've started off by telling people you're broken and you're sinful and you're in need. But friends, that is not where the story of the scriptures start. The story of the scriptures start. It is blessed and it is good 
and it is beautiful. And I think followers of Jesus, we need to start our story of soteriology, of anthropology, of our chronology, of where we tell the story of the scriptures. We need to start in Genesis chapter one, not in Genesis three. It's good before it's bad. It's beautiful before it's broken. It's blessed before it's sinful. As the scriptures would say in Psalm chapter 8, when I look up to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which we'd all agree are impressive, yes? That you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you'd care for him? Yet, 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 you've made him a little lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings, and you have put all things under his feet. Now, please hear me. Please hear me. I am not saying that sin isn't a real thing. It's a real thing and it's killing us. And Jesus hates it so much that he became one of us in order to redeem us from that curse. And he validates our humanity, our worth by not only, not only saying it's a good thing to be human by becoming one of us, but by teaching us how to be fully human. I think there's a misnomer when we read the story of Jesus in the gospel. I think we often imagine that Jesus is the least human person to ever live. I'd like to suggest to you that it's actually the exact opposite that Jesus is the most human person to ever live, not the least human person. We have this axiomatic phrase, well, to sin is human. We sort of go, well, oh, well, that's who we are. And I just want to speak a word of truth over your life today. That is not who you are. To sin is not human. To sin is inhumane. To hate is inhumane. Violence is inhumane. Anger is inhumane. Lust is inhumane. Those things don't make us more human. They make us less human. And when Jesus comes, please hear me, church, when Jesus comes and John the baptizer looks at him and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we often think, oh, Jesus is coming so that we can go to heaven. And that is 100% true. Yes and amen. Forgiveness of sin gets us to heaven by faith and grace. Praise be to God. But please hear me on this, that forgiveness of sin gets us to heaven, but it also restores our humanity. It allows us to walk into God's kingdom, to live the life that he'd always designed us to live. See, if we just talk about getting to heaven, that's docetism. Oh, one day we'll get out of these bodies and it'll be better. No, 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 no. The gospel is about what happens on the ground and what happens on the air. It's about both. I think Pastor Josh said it well in his devotion that's coming out this week that go along with each of our sermons. And here's what he says. He says, trusting in Jesus as savior will save your soul in eternity. But following Jesus as an example will save your life in the present. And believe me, Jesus wants both for you. This is not an either or endeavor church. 
This is a both and. So incarnation initiates relationship, it validates worth, and then one final thing. Since therefore, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. The children, that's, that's you and I. We all have the same kinds of bodies, right? Right? Okay. <laughs> Hello? He himself, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. His body was exactly like your body and exactly like mine. Like you could touch it. It was fleshy. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, come on, church. That is so beautiful. He became like one of us, that he might redeem us, that he might restore us, that he might bring us back to all that it means to be human. See, Jesus does not save us from his angry father. He saves us from our sin and from the cosmic powers of sin and death that threatened to kill us and held us captive. And he says, I'll step into flesh and bone and blood and I will bear the penalty of sin, which is death. And I will carry it to the grave and I will walk out with new life in my hands. Yes, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That the incarnation restores our destiny as the children of the Most High God. Uh, on June 23rd, 2018, you might remember seeing this story on the news where there was a soccer team in Thailand who went on a hike and they walked into a cave. Their coach led 12 of the soccer players into that cave. He had been there before and sort of knew the route, but what he didn't know is that there was a monsoon coming and the monsoon came and the water's, water levels rose. And so they were stuck in this cave two and a half miles back in utter darkness without any food and without any water. And the whole world took notice. Do you remember seeing this? It was like a collective worldwide endeavor. What are we going to do? Even Elon Musk got in on the action, right? Oh, well, maybe, maybe we could design some sort of robotic submarine that could go in there and they could get in it and they could finally come out. But all of those attempts ultimately failed. There was only one thing that would actually save those boys. Someone had to go in after them. And someone had to bring them out from darkness to the light. And after 17 days, the world looked on in absolute awe as every single one of those 13 people emerged from that cave. Friends, this is Christmas. Not that God sent a message, but that he has become the messenger and that in his life, and in his body, in his flesh, and in his blood, we are redeemed. Destiny restored. And see, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. With the whole Christmas story, 
It's really easy for us to say, oh, that's a great truth, and oh, isn't that amazing? But throughout this series, we've been convinced that the way that Jesus comes and the way that Jesus lives is not just something to be celebrated, but it's something to be emulated. It's something to be followed to live in the way of the manger. And the way of flesh is no different. See, incarnation is not just something, a theological truth that we should believe. It's a way that needs to be embodied. It's a way that needs to be embodied. See, the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and just lean in a little bit. Here's what he said. He's going to teach us how to live and then call, call us to a way of life and then a way of mind. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind, having this attitude that influences the way that you live, which is yours in Christ, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Paul's saying, do the same thing. Live in the same way by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So let me give you three really, really quick things. First, remember, the message is the messenger. You are part of Jesus' message to your friends and to your family. What kind of message are they hearing when they encounter you? What kind of message are they feeling when they encounter you? Uh, maybe we begin by this conviction, this conviction. When we look at people who are in circumstances that we couldn't imagine, and maybe it's a little bit easy for us to judge at times, what if we just started with this conviction? If I'd grown up the way that they'd grown up, if I'd had the experiences that they've had, if, I've, if I was born into the house that they were born into, I'd probably believe what they believe and I would probably do what they're doing. And maybe our heart would just start to grow with compassion a little bit. And what if we started to just show up? As we used to say in the young life, you've got to earn the right to be heard. Incarnate yourself in the lives of friends and family. Second, what does it look to, like to validate worth? It means, it means that we advocate for the value of all people. All people. No asterisks, no exceptions, no footnote, no nothing. We as followers of Jesus advocate for the value of all people. That means that we advocate for the value of the unborn and it means that we, value, that we advocate for the value of the immigrant and the refugee, that we care about kids in the womb, but we also care about families who are separated and families on the streets. We don't get to pick and choose. We value all people because God clothed himself in humanity and love and is pursuing us. And finally, finally, here's what it means. It means that we participate with Jesus in the restoration of all things. Yeah, we hold out the gospel. We hold out the word of hope and the word of life. And we call people, repent from your sin. It's killing you. And we address their spiritual need. But we also, we also call people to things like set free, celebrate recovery. We call people to divorce care. We call people to grief share. We call people to heal from the very real wounds that they carry. We do both. We do both because we believe that Jesus is inviting us 
to a restored destiny birthed by the incarnation. Friends, I'm convinced that the church that changes Escondido, the church that changes our nation, the types of church that eventually change the world will be churches who live in the way of flesh. Let's pray. Jesus, that would be our prayer. That we would be those kind of people, people that show up when it's difficult and in the brokenness and dirt of life people that validate worth. Man, when people are around us, Jesus, I I just pray that something in their heart would come alive, that they would feel from us what you feel towards them. And Jesus, would you use us for the glory of your name and the joy of all people, inviting them to restore destiny in you, we pray.